Welcome. Glad to have y'all here. How many of y'all were tempted to go that way where they are serving dinner instead of over here? Well, thanks, Sylvia, for our snacks. And, uh, um, you know, I totally don't mind. it. Get This is Watermark, so get up and go grab some water or snacks as we're sitting here rolling along. And... Uh, um, you know, if you wait long enough, you may even be able to slide over to Equip Disciple and get some of the leftovers, okay? That's a well-known staff trick. Uh, but I'm Bobby Crotty. had the privilege of walking through the New Testament with you. Last week, we focused on the Gospels, okay? And um, we all learned that the Gospels paint four pictures of Christ. And Matthew of... Um, of course, is the first one. It's the perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And um, Matthew depicts Christ as the king, right? Uh, you know, perfect for uh, the book of Matthew. He's writing to a largely Hebrew audience. Key verse I picked out of the book was uh, Matthew sixteen sixteen, where uh, in 15 he asked Peter, uh, a question that rings down through the halls of history to today. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter's, probably his finest moment, uh, was his answer that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Mark pictures Christ as the suffering servant. Uh, for that one, I picked uh, Mark ten forty five. Anybody know that? Any equipped disciple graduates in here? Hmm? Ah, dad gummit. Well, that's a myth. Um, it's a great verse. It said that, uh, um, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? In other words, for all of us. And then Luke. Is uh, has the unique distinction of what? Gentile. He's the only Gentile author of Scripture. Okay? And so it's not, um, well, let me say it a different way. It's very apropos that he pictures Christ as the Son of Man. Okay? And his focus is on what? What does he focus on? Who is he? He's a Gentile. And what are Gentiles? They are the ultimate outsiders. And so Luke focuses on the outsiders. Okay? And then um, we come to John. And who's John written to? The book, the Gospel of John. Everyone. That's exactly right. It has a universal appeal and scope. And John depicts Christ as the Son of God, okay? And uh, anybody remember the verse that we picked for that as a key verse? 2031 that says, uh, These things I've written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have eternal life, okay? And what was the key word that we used for uh, the book of John? Believe. How many times does the word, the verb believe, appear in the book of John? 
Yeah, Wagner said 99 the other day. I've always said 98, so he may have slipped a participle in on me or something. Um, but uh, at least 98 times uh, the verb believe is used. Um, the corresponding noun to believe is belief. How many times is that used in the book of John? How many? None, exactly. And so what do we draw from that? Yeah, that um, John is calling us to believe in a way that is alive and active. That our belief, the things that we believe, cause us to take action. And that first action is to believe in uh, the Son of God. All right, so there's a little warm-up for us. Let me pray before I finish the whole lesson without praying, and we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for the chance to... um, Examine your New Testament. You've told us that uh, every word uh, of Scripture is breathed by you and that it's profitable to instruct and correct and rebuke and reprove and just to uh, uh, guide us in the paths of righteousness. And so, Father, uh, may we open your word. May it uh, uh, have an impact on uh, us tonight. And more importantly, may it have an impact on us outside these walls, that we might live in a way that brings honor and glory to your name and to your son's name. Amen. All right, so here we go. Um, We're already in week two. It's hard to believe. We're going to focus on the book of Acts tonight. And believe it or not, we're going to talk about every one of the rest of the epistles except the book of Revelation, which we'll save for the last week. Okay? Um, So here's a little uh, summary that I uh, threw in for you. Uh, I included some dates because folks were asking about that. You know, uh, uh, scholars and commentators date the various gospels all over the place. Uh, but this was my best shot at trying to uh, make some sense out of when they may have been written. There we have the key ideas in there for uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Threw in the Acts one as a bonus. We'll talk about that in a minute. A little outline for you and a purpose. Okay? And I actually even looked at this, and even with my old eyes, um, you can read it off of here. But if anybody wants an electronic copy of this, just email Sylvia McCallum who's uh, running the show tonight. Uh, Sylvia is one of our residents and is uh, coming on staff here after she finishes her residency. So uh, uh, email Sylvia, S. McCallum, uh, M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M, I do that right, um, at watermark.org, and she'll be glad to send you a, um, an electronic copy. All right? Ah, so it's map time. Did anybody learn something from the map uh, last week? Okay, that's helpful for using in the Gospels. And we have standing in the back of the room Captain Nathan Wagnon. Nathan, how important are maps to an infantry officer? Essential. Essential. Now, see, he is a captain, and so captains are okay with maps. Uh, I was a second lieutenant. And second lieutenants are dangerous with maps. You don't want to give a map to a second lieutenant because they'll either get you lost, uh, they'll get you uh, in the wrong place, or whatnot. But captains know what they're doing, 
and they can read a map and associate it with terrain features. And particularly for the, um, uh, for the book of Acts, I think it's really helpful to have a map that will walk you through uh, where all Paul and uh, uh, whatnot, or uh, Paul and Peter really, uh, are going, okay? And so here is a map that uh, I've thrown in for um, use in identifying. Again, we'll pick out four regions and four cities, okay? And so uh, uh, you can look at slide five, and there are our four regions or countries um, to know for the book of Acts. And the first one is Galatia, okay? Obviously, uh, the letter to the Galatians was written to a church located in this area. Everybody see where it's located? Um, it's right there in uh, what is uh, today modern-day Turkey. Here's the region of Galatia, okay? The next area I would identify is uh, um, Greece. You know, y'all don't have any trouble locating Greece. Sometimes it's called Macedonia, uh, but it's this little area plus a, a bunch of islands, Okay, the next one is uh, uh, Asia. Now, that was one that might throw us uh, today. Asia is located right in here, kind of in mainland Turkey. All right, everybody see that over here? Okay, Asia located there. And then finally, one that uh, uh, we certainly all know, uh, and that's Rome. And then we also want to talk about four uh, cities. There are some uh, um, verses where the different regions are mentioned, different countries. Um, Paul traveling through um, those different areas. And so here are four cities um, that we also want to talk about. <clears throat> the first one is uh, uh, Antioch. Antioch is uh, right here, kind of at the corner. Um, Probably is what is today uh, either Syria or Turkey. It's right near Tarsus, where Paul comes from. Okay, um, not far from the island of uh, Cyprus. Uh, and this city is really important uh, because, uh, um, well, you tell me, why is Antioch important? Anybody have an idea? First called Christians in Antioch. Okay, well done. And it's important because each one of Paul's missionary journeys start and finish in Antioch. It was kind of the jumping off place. Okay? <clears throat> the second city we'll talk about is Ephesus. All right? Obviously, uh, that's where the letter to the Ephesians was written, right here on the coast of uh, Turkey. Right off of uh, the coast there, of, uh, uh, across from Ephesus, is a little island called Patmos. <clears throat> what happened in Patmos? Yeah, that's what we'll be talking about next week. John was exiled uh, from Ephesus, likely, uh, to Patmos and spent um, a year or more working in the mines, even though he was an old man at that point. Um, but um, he was just right off the coast from Ephesus, okay? And so obviously Paul spent a good deal of time in Ephesus, and it's an important city 
uh, for the uh, early church. <clears throat> then another important city uh, is Caesarea. That's down here on the coast of uh, Israel, uh, not too far from uh, Jerusalem. And uh, um, what sort of things happened in Caesarea? Hmm? Here's Caesarea right down here. Well, we're going to see it in uh, Acts 25 and 26. Remember when Paul finishes his missionary journeys? He uh, ends up in Jerusalem. Uh, The uh, Jews uh, uh, are agitated about him. They try to uh, uh, have him arrested. They do have him arrested. They put him on trial, and they ultimately turn him over to the Romans because they hope to do what? To do the same thing uh, to Paul that they did to Christ. And so Paul is then taken because he's, uh, his life is in danger in Jerusalem. He is taken by the Romans to Caesarea, <clears throat> which was uh, um, the base of operations, the, the home, if you will, for uh, the Roman governor. And uh, um, so Paul appeared before <clears throat> both Festus and Felix there in Caesarea. I'm going to show you pictures of the uh, <clears throat> place where Paul made his defense uh, before, uh, I can't remember if it was Felix or Festus, but one of those guys, or perhaps both of these guys, and uh, um, um, the structure is still standing today. Um, it may have been rebuilt uh, a number of times, but there's still some first century sort of uh, uh, workings there. And uh, um, it is quite an amazing thing to sit there in the amphitheater where Paul was put on trial. And if you read Acts 26, you can go read the defense, and that's what we did. We read that uh, out loud, um, sitting there uh, right where Paul made his defense before uh, these Roman governors. Okay? And then the last city uh, uh, is one that you know, and that's uh, Rome up here on the, uh, the boot of uh, Italy. Okay? And that's where Paul will ultimately end up in Acts 28. All right. Um, so let's look at the... Um, remember the four countries are Galatia, Greece, Asia, and Rome. Galatia and Asia both being uh, where modern-day Turkey is located. And then Greece and Rome, you, of course, know. Uh, anybody know what this is a picture of? <clears throat> hmm? Bunch of rocks? That's exactly right. Okay, what rocks are they? <laughs> These are the remains of Temple Mount that was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And so I don't know if you can notice it, but right up here, right there, is a person. And that gives you some idea of the size. Y'all see the guy standing there? That gives you an idea of the size of these blocks that the Romans pushed off Temple Mount, and they still sit there today. A.D. 70, when uh, uh, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple destroyed. Okay? Um, And then um, here are the four cities, Antioch, Ephesus, Caesarea, in Rome, this picture is obviously a picture of the Roman Colosseum. 
All right, so any questions about the uh, geography? All right, well, let's move into the book of Acts. Okay, and I start, maybe you go, well, why do we start with Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Well, of course, that's the Great Commission, and that's what is played out in the book of Acts as we see the start and spread of the church. Okay, um, I picked uh, Acts 1 through 12 um, to describe the start of the church. The key figure was Peter. Key event was Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers. And uh, um, there we uh, see the first persecution start. Okay? And then uh, in Acts 13 through 28, uh, we see the spread of the church. And that uh, occurs through the missionary activity of Paul is the, the big focus of this section. So he's the key figure. He has switched from being Saul and now is Paul. And uh, the key event uh, are his missionary journeys. And then um, also Paul's imprisonments, both in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea. And then ultimately he appeals to Caesar, uh, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And uh, he ends up in Rome. And God uses that to take the gospel uh, into Rome. And not just into Rome, but he said that uh, um, it was known that he was being imprisoned for the cause of Christ throughout the entire imperial guard. Those were the, you know, those were the navy seals of the Roman Empire that were charged with protecting the emperor, okay, the Caesar. And so for Paul to make inroads for the gospel with those guys uh, was pretty amazing. This is actually a picture of the amphitheater where um, Paul made his defense in uh, the end of Acts uh, in Caesarea. Okay? And so for um, a key verse, I pick Acts 1.8. Open your Bibles to Acts 1.8, and let's just read that. It reads, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is uh, uh, Christ talking to uh, um, his disciples right before he ascends to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then what? You will be my witnesses. And that is key phrase for the book of Acts. And really, gang, it's the key phrase for us today. That's what we are called to do, to be his witnesses. You know, we're to be and make disciples uh, as the mission of Watermark Church. And uh, um, our mandate is to continue to be his witnesses. And now we're not in Jerusalem. We're not in all Judea and Samaria. We're part of the, to the end of the earth. Okay, and this happened uh, literally in the first century to the end of the known earth at that time, known world at that time, and now uh, the gospel is spreading all over the world. Okay, so that's a key verse because it gives us a great outline for the rest of the book. And uh, um, if I was going to outline it uh, based on that, I would uh, um, pick 
um, Jerusalem for chapters 1 through 7, Judea and Samaria for chapters 8 through 12, and the ends of the earth from 13 to the end of the book. But you know, it's interesting, uh, uh, the title of the book, Acts of the Apostles, you'd think we would have all the apostles uh, being uh, highlighted throughout this, uh, but it's really um, the acts of some of the apostles, and primarily Peter first, the apostle to the Jews, as it were, and then Paul, who first goes to the Jews, he would make it a practice when he came into a city to go into the synagogue to teach and whatnot. Uh, but then, ultimately, uh, he shook the dust off his uh, clothes and said, hey, the Jews uh, are not receiving this, and so from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And ultimately, he took the message to the Gentiles, which was a, an amazing thing to all the Jews. Okay, And so it's a book about the start and spread of the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the ancient world. It covers a period of about 30 years. Okay, From about, uh, if the Lord was crucified in AD 33, uh, it ends with uh, Paul's house arrest, uh, and that has been dated uh, approximately AD 62. And as always, you know, Luke was the physician and uh, the uh, resident historian. He had three purposes in writing uh, the book of Acts. And so first was to re- uh, provide a record of the events to show the spread of the gospel and to show the spread of the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the world. The second, he wanted to show how God's plans and purposes were working out uh, in history. And in particular, he's showing how Christ is irresistibly building his church through the spread of the gospel. And then finally, he wanted to provide an apologetic tool uh, for believers to use. And so just as we have great questions uh, here at Watermark, it's actually led by Nathan Wagnon, you just saw uh, back there a few minutes ago. Uh, it's a place for folks, to, a safe place to come and ask questions about Christianity. And so this book was, um, um, one of Luke's purposes was to provide information for uh, the believers of that era to be able to defend their faith. You know, they were having to survive in what can only be described as a hostile pagan environment, and this book is a great tool in helping them do that. So it begins with an introductory section from uh, 1-1 to about uh, 241, before it sets forth in uh, uh, the movement of the gospel uh, from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. And it's interesting that... uh, um, each time, let's go look at uh, um, Acts 2.42. That begins a little section that uh, um, uh, Todd always talks about when he's doing a new member class. Um, and he asks people to... Uh, um, <clears throat> Give as many of uh, um, 
descriptive phrases in uh, verses 42 to 47 about the early churches they can. And he now has a list that is long and impressive of the different attributes of the early church. But this is what we want to be as a church. We want to be not big, we want to be biblical. And this is a, a description of what a biblical church looked like starting in the first century. Okay, so these progress reports, uh, you see in verse 41, it says, So those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then verse 47 says, In praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you can see the same sort of progress report on the spread of the gospel um, at least six more places in the book of uh, Acts. Remember how <clears throat> Matthew used a little phrase to mark the end of uh, each one of Christ's discourses in the book of uh, Matthew? Mar uh, Luke does the same thing right here to uh, mark the spread of the gospel. And so um, here are where those other progress reports are located. Let me just give them to you so you can write them down and go uh, look at them later. Uh, 6, 7, chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 24, chapter 16, verse 5, chapter 19, verse 20, and finally uh, um, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. So go look at those progress reports and you'll be encouraged by seeing the spread of the gospel um, in this early time. And so again, Luke follows what's essentially a geographical outline as he moves through the book and as the church spreads uh, throughout the book, okay? Let's talk a little bit about Paul's missionary journeys that start in uh, chapter 13 as we kind of, Paul's introduced um, earlier than that, but the first 12 chapters really focus on what Peter's up to. We get to meet Paul. We first see him holding uh, people's cloaks at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. Um, and then we see his experience of uh, meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, his Damascus Road experience. And uh, um, then starting in, verse, in um, chapter 13, then we see uh, Paul being the focus of the book to the end. And so here's a little outline of the three missionary journeys. So the primary focus, focus on the first one was in the area of Galatia. Okay, that's chapters 13 and 14. Uh, it's Paul and Barnabas traveling together. Bar Barnabas was one of the leaders of the early church. Um, and for a key event, I picked Paul's message in chapter 13, Verses 16 through 43. Go read that. That's an amazing little sermon right there. And then uh, the second journey you can read about in uh, chapter 15, verse 36, through about the end of chapter 18, or not quite to the end, but almost. Um, that journey is Paul and Silas. He's also called Silvanus. And so um, if you see Silvanus, uh, that's who they're talking about is Silas. Um, you know, um, <clears throat> Paul appears before the Roman Bema, the Roman judgment seat, and 
when he writes in 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll talk more about this next week in the book of Revelation, but when he writes about the judgment seat of Christ and says that we as believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he knows what it is to appear before a judgment seat. He's done that, okay? And he ended up doing it several times. Uh, But it's interesting to read about uh, this event in uh, Acts 18. And then the final journey, and this is, um, he's still establishing churches. That was the real purpose of these journeys, to uh, spread the gospel and to establish churches. Um, This one he's doing by himself. And uh, he had other uh, folks come and go on this, but uh, the key event I picked was the riot at Ephesus. So go read about that in uh, uh, Acts 19, okay? And so you have a little map, and that map, unfortunately, is not uh, nearly sufficient for you to be able to trace the journeys uh, that Paul took um, as his missionary journeys. Uh, Here's a little bigger uh, copy of it, but if you'll just Google Paul's map of Paul's missionary journeys, uh, you'll find a thousand of them. And so um, I find it really helpful as I'm reading through the book of Acts to have a little map of Paul's missionary journey so you can see where he's going. Okay? It's interesting that in the book of uh, Acts, Paul deliberately sets up a number of parallels between the ministry of Peter in the first half of the book and that of Paul in the last half of the book. And so why do you think he did that? Any thoughts? Well, let me suggest an idea to you. Who, who was the new guy? Who's the new kid on the block? Yeah. And so, you know, Peter was a leader of the apostles, um, a pillar of the early church. Um, I don't think he uh, had the role that uh, the Catholic Church envisions uh, or envisions of uh, Peter. But he was obviously a key figure for the apostles and whatnot. And for Paul to be compared to uh, Peter uh, gave Paul um, authority and standing as he went out as the face of the early church in spreading uh, the gospel throughout uh, the uh, known Roman world at that time. Okay, So I think what Luke was doing was deliberate to say, hey, this guy has been tapped by the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, uh, in showing the parallels between Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry helped um, authenticate Paul's uh, apostleship. Okay? Um, Luke emphasizes four major points. Number one has to be the witness mandate. Be my witnesses. And you see people being witnesses throughout the book. There's also a focus on the ascended Christ. And there's a focus on the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, there's also, obviously, given the name of the book, a focus on the uh, apostles. One more thing I would really encourage you to look for as you read through the book of Acts. Look at all the references to prayer. The early church was built on prayer. And that tells us that, hey, 
prayer needs to be a key ingredient of the church today. There is a reference to prayer in almost every chapter of the book of Acts. <clears throat> and there are also a bunch of speeches in the book of Acts. Um, I counted at least 23, uh, seven of them by Peter himself. Okay? So let's turn over to uh, the very end of uh, the book of Acts. Chapter 28, verses uh, 30 and 31, read, and they're talking about Paul here in Roman confinement. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. How about that? Okay? And so what do you think about the way it ends right there? I mean, does that feel like an ending? To me, it feels like we're ending on a comma. And I think we are. I think that book was deliberately ended on a comma because the church is still spreading today and that we're a part of this story of the spread of the church. That you in your jobs and in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in this community, you are being a witness and fulfilling the witness mandate, living out the Great Commission, doing the things that we need to do to be the church and to take God's um, word and the gospel of Christ to the ends of the world. And, you know, part of the ends of the world is your little neighborhood. And if you don't share the gospel in that neighborhood, who will? And so I love the way that the book of Acts ends. And I love the description that I totally ripped off of uh, a buddy of mine in Denver, uh, where he, in a, a message, said that it ends on a comma. And I think it does end on a comma. And that story is still being written today. All right, so uh, as we've done for the others, uh, for the book of Acts, think witness and think start and spread of the church. All right, questions on Acts? That is a 100,000-foot flyby. But I, what I'm trying to do is give you a framework so that as you read the book of Acts on your own, you'll be able to know, hey, if I'm in the first half of the book, the focus is kind of Peter. The last half of the book, the focus is Paul's missionary journeys and then Paul's journey to Rome uh, to be put on trial and how he spreads the gospel in Rome. And uh, um, hopefully it will give you a framework for, as you read it, to start to flesh out the skeleton that we've outlined. Any questions about Acts? All right, well, let's keep moving. Now, buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to start moving fast. All right, so the epistles, six authors, Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, and Mr. or Ms. Unknown. We don't know who wrote which book. Hebrews, that's right. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay, we've got some guesses, and we'll talk about that. And these epistles are written to... Churches, of course, 
and then, but also to groups. And then a couple of them are written to individuals. And then this is important. Um, the epistles generally follow a pattern of doctrine, then duty. The book of Romans is perfect for that. The first eight chapters you have the doctrine of salvation. And then we see uh, how salvation is going to play out uh, for both the Gentiles and the Jews in chapters 9 through uh, 11. And then finally we see in chapters 12 through 16, um, we see how um, the believer's duty in light of that salvation is to play out. And when we get there, I'll talk about it as our service. Okay, so remember that as you read the epistles, doctrine then duty. Okay, that's the general uh, um, setup for uh, the um, uh, epistles. Okay, um, I am standing there uh, at Masada looking out this hole in uh, one of the walls of Masada with the Dead Sea in the uh, um, background there. Um, pretty amazing. Uh, if you're ever in Israel, be sure you go to Masada. All right, so here's where we need to start uh, buckling our seatbelts because we're going to be moving fast. And the first thing I want to do is uh, um, talk about how each one of these books depict Christ. Because what I'm trying to do is give you a little handle for each one of the books. Okay, and so we've, we've talked about king, servant, son of man, son of God. Um, and for Acts, I put the one to whom we are to be witnesses. Um, Romans, the one in whom we trust for eternal life. And in the books of First and Second Corinthians, who is Christ? Well, he is wisdom from God for righteous living. And those Corinthians definitely needed a healthy dose of righteous living. We'll talk about that. Uh, in Galatians, he's the one in whom we are justified by faith. Um, in Ephesians, he's the one with whom we're seated, with whom we walk, and with whom we stand. Joy for the book of Philippians. He is joy. He's supreme in Colossians. Go read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 as it describes um, the supremacy of Christ. In First and Second Thessalonians, he's the one who's coming again, both in the rapture and at his second coming. He's the mediator in First and Second Timothy. He's the blessed hope and great God and Savior in a, a great verse in Titus, Titus 2.13. I love the book of uh, Philemon. Um, he's the one in whom we appeal to others. You see that played out in the uh, book of Philemon. He's the one who is superior in the book of Hebrews. And James, he's the object of our faith, and he's the judge of our works. First and second Peter, he's the one whom we sanctify as Lord. First question? Um, thanks. Um, in James, he's the object of our faith and the judge of our works. Let's see, I talked about that. In First and Second Peter, he's the one whom we sanctify as Lord. First and second, third John, he's the one where eternal life is found. He's the one who keeps us from stumbling in Jude. And then we end with a, uh, uh, a great crescendo because he is the one who is coming quickly.
He is coming again in the book of Revelation. All right, so let's just slow down for a second and talk about uh, these different epistles. <clears throat> and so I'm going to skip Romans because we're going to spend some more time in Romans, but let's start with First and Second Corinthians. And, um, you know, this is one of those uh, uh, churches that, uh, um, regardless of what your church is like, cor- the Corinthian church would make you feel good about your own church because this church was messed up, Okay. Uh, one pastor calls it the Church of Jerry Springer. So, uh, what do we have in the book of First and Se- the books of First and Second Corinthians? Well, we've got illicit sex, prostitution, homosexuality, getting drunk at communion, suing each other, stealing, divorce, and maybe the worst of all is approving of someone who's sleeping with his father's wife. How's that for a uh, uh, a church thing? And so, if you think tolerance or intolerance is a problem today, we have nothing on the Corinthian church for sure. So um, with that kind of wind-up, doesn't it make you just want to go read the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians is more of Paul's defense of his apostleship, okay? And let me just stop and say, um, on the Journey website... Jointhejourney.com. If you go, um, in the top right is a, a menu drop-down list. And if you go to uh, uh, Join the Journey journal, um, in the journal itself, we have an outline for every book. And so if you want a good working outline for each one of these epistles, uh, then I would strongly suggest that you go download that. You can download it as a PDF and just... Uh, copy those two pages. It's a great little summary of both the Old Testament and the New Testament since we're reading through the whole Bible. We've got outlines and key words for each one of the different uh, um, books of the Bible. And so for the uh, epistles, that would really be a help to you. Okay, if you have problems locating it, just email me or email Sylvia and we'll help you find it. Okay, the Galatian church. Here's where we get to see Paul's uh, pastoral side. It's an attack on false teachers who have infected the Galatian church with heretical teaching that salvation is by the things we do, such as keeping the law, rather than by faith in Christ. And so, if you struggle with self-righteousness, Galatians is a good book for you. And so, when I say we get to see Paul's pastoral side, let's go look at that in the book of Galatians right quick. In chapter 3, verse 1, here's how he gently admonishes the um, Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Okay, there's a good pastoral introduction to uh, his flock. And, you know, uh, Paul was a bold guy. Look right up in uh, um, chapter 2, in verse 11. He's talking about to the Galatians about uh, um, what he did when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, one of our cities. It says, I opposed him uh, to his face because he stood condemned. Other translations say because he was wrong. And so this guy was a bold man who was willing to take on the chief apostle 
and get in his face and say, buddy, you're wrong about something, okay? And so go read the book of Galatians to see what he was uh, uh, calling Peter out about. Um, This is a great little book. The book of Ephesians is one of the four books that Paul wrote, one of the four letters that he wrote while he was in prison, okay? It's not written to address a particular problem, But what's interesting about this book to me is that we will see in the book of Revelation, which was written approximately 30 years after the uh, book of Ephesians, that this church that was characterized by love uh, has fallen on hard times just 30 years later. And if you've read the book of Revelation about what it says about the Ephesian church, it describes it as having left its first love. And so they're all about love. They're known for love uh, 30 years earlier, but after that passage of time, they've lost their first love. How about that? You know, Watermark is doing great right now. We're growing. Things are happening. But the question is, where will we be in 30 years? Will we be like the Ephesian church? Are we going to continue to be witnesses for the gospel? Gang, let me assure you, times are going to get tougher for us to be able to do that. And our effectiveness as a church is going to depend on men and women like you sitting in this room being willing to be witnesses even in the midst of tough times. 30 years from now, I'm going to be gone. It's going to be your problem. It's not going to be mine. I'm going to be up there with Jesus. Um, I don't even think I'll be looking down upon you, okay? Um, But... That is our challenge, and it is amazing to see in the book of Ephesians that just 30 years later, you know, they're described as having lost their first love, okay? It's probably not a coincidence that Paul uses the word love in Ephesians more than any of his other letters with perhaps the exception of 1 Corinthians, okay? So love characterized this church, but... 30 years later, they had left their first love. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week. I like to use the uh, um, outline for this book of sit, walk, stand. Okay? Uh, Paul talks about being seated in the heavenly places with Christ. This is the blessings that we have. Then he talks about walking with Christ in chapters 3 and 4. And then he talks about standing with Christ. All right, how about Philippians? It's probably written to the healthiest early church. It's another prison epistle. And it's not surprising that a key word for the book is joy. That Paul finds that he has learned to be content in whatever circumstances he finds himself, even sitting in a Roman prison. Because he um, views it as an opportunity for the gospel. You know, they change the guards about every four hours. So every four hours, he had new guys he was chained to that he can share the gospel with. How about that? And the cause of Christ became known throughout the whole uh, imperial guard because of Paul's faithfulness. He even notes in this little book that his imprisonment actually resulted in the spread of the uh, gospel in an unlikely place because the whole imperial guard knew that Paul was in prison for the sake of Christ. You can read about that in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. 
Colossians is another prison epistle. It was written to correct the Colossian heresy, which essentially denied the deity of Christ. And in doing that, Paul uh, has um, presented one of the greatest descriptions of the supremacy and the deity of Christ. You can read about that in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. First and Second Thessalonians are written to a young church that Paul had founded, and it contains some great teaching about both the rapture and the day of the Lord. And it's interesting that some in the Thessalonian church were expecting Jesus to return so quickly that they actually stopped working. And if you go read Second um, Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians three, Paul commands them to get back to work. And what does he tell uh, the church? He says, if they don't work, don't feed them. And so uh, he exhorts them to get to work and to um, be witnesses for the gospel of Christ as they do their work. I love the books of uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're written to Paul's young pastor protégés. Both Timothy and Titus were... Um, Paul's protégés, you could describe them as leadership, pastor, and conduct manual. And if you want to know what it takes to be an elder at Watermark, go check out 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. One of my favorite books is the book of Philemon. It's the final prison epistle, the fourth of four prison epistles. Uh, It's written to a godly man named Philemon. Uh, who had a slave named Onesimus. There you go, uh, ladies. There's a good name for your um, baby uh, name list. Uh, Onesimus had stolen money, apparently, from Philemon and run away. But Paul had led both of them to Christ. And now he appeals to Philemon to accept Onesimus back, uh, not as a slave, but as his spiritual brother. And if you ever feel that you're powerless or poor, and that God just doesn't care, well, sit down and read the book of Philemon. You can take comfort from that book because God does care, and he gives us this little gem of a book to let us know that he does care. And in particular, pay attention to uh, verses 18 and 19. There's only one chapter of this book, and Paul tells um, Philemon that, hey, if there's anything that Onesimus has stolen from you, Charge it to my account. I'll pay that. And what is that but a great picture of the gospel where Jesus paid our tab? Book of James, you've probably spent uh, some time hanging out in James. It's all about faith and works. It's written to a bunch of believers. And so there's no contradiction between what James says about faith and works and what Paul says about faith and works. Okay? Okay. Our works declare us righteous in the sense that they testify to others that we have been saved through faith in Christ. Okay, They're the external fruit that uh, uh, bears witness to the eternal life that we have. First and second Peter are written to people undergoing severe persecution for their faith. Uh, I call those two books a survival manual for suffering saints and a forewarning for faithful friends. First, uh, second, third John, we see John repeating a lot of the themes that he develops in the Gospel of John. 
Um, love one another, walk in love, run from deceivers, live in the truth, look out for troublemakers. And finally, the little book of Jude is a great little book, another one-chapter book. Uh, and uh, Jude is warning against false teachers. And he is calling on us as members of the church to guard the faith against false teachers. And it's a great little introduction to the book, of Rome, uh, the book of Revelation because one of the things we'll see in the book of Revelation is that uh, at least a couple of the churches that, uh, to whom Revelation was addressed have been affected by false teachers and by um, tolerating evil in the midst of the church. All right, so that's a pretty breathless sprint through those epistles. And now I want to slow down and talk about the book of Romans, okay? And so um, let's dive into the uh, book of Romans. Key word I'd pick is gospel. It was written in about AD 56 or 57. Paul was actually probably in Corinth when he wrote this. Um, and I think he was on his uh, uh, third missionary journey, if I'm not mistaken, second or third. And it's really like Paul's last will and testament. It's Paul sitting down and saying, hey, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, what do I want the church to know? And so uh, he presents a complete and detailed statement of the gospel message that he preached. Okay? And so... If you know uh, one book in the New Testament, know the book of Romans. There's all sorts of good reasons for that. Here's a little outline for it. Chapters 1 through 3 uh, describe as uh, discussing sin and its problems. Okay? And that we're all sinners. Uh, Romans 3.23. We... um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thank you. There's a, a, an ED verse for you. Okay? Verses four, or chapters 4 and 5, salvation. Chapters 6 through 8, just talk about sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11, talk about God's sovereignty and working out His sovereign plan with respect to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And then, uh, as I alluded earlier, uh, chapters 12 through 16 are the duty portion of the book uh, where we see the service that uh, Paul uh, talks about. How do we live out this gospel message that he writes so eloquently about in the book of Romans? Martin Luther uh, uh, wrote that Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It's Paul's longest and most formal letter. It's really more of a treatise than a letter, and it's the most systematic presentation of doctrine in the Bible. As I described it earlier, it's kind of like Paul's last will and testament. Romans 1.8 says that uh, the church in Rome was known throughout the world, um, and the city itself was the greatest city in the world at that time, over a million inhabitants. And so he wrote it, uh, um, here's uh, my note on when he wrote it, uh, approximately AD 56 or 57 during a three-month stay in Greece, more specifically Corinth. 
and uh, he was indeed on his third missionary journey. And it's interesting to note, if you turn over to Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, he likely gave this to um, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at uh, Sincrea, which was actually a little port city for Corinth, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. It's likely that he gave this letter to uh, um, her so that she could deliver it to the church at Rome because Paul had not yet been uh, in Rome. So let's talk theme and turn back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. To me, this really captures the theme of the book of uh, um, Romans. And it reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Um, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? Okay? And so, who's the picture of faith in the Old Testament? What guy? Abraham, exactly. Okay? And why? Because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, who does Paul hold up as the picture of faith in the book of Romans? Okay, this is not a trick question. Who? Abraham. Yeah. If you go read uh, um if you go read Romans 4, Abraham once again is held up as the picture of faith. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells me that salvation is the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God doesn't change, and the way to have relationship with him in the Old Testament and the New Testament doesn't change. Okay? It's by faith. Now, they look forward to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. The New Testament, uh, um, some of them got to experience the Messiah in their presence. And then later as the church spread, they look back to the Messiah who had come and been crucified just as we do today. But salvation's the same. And Paul's use of Abraham underscores that... um, He is the picture, he is the model of faith for us, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Okay, so um, these two little verses in uh, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 combine salvation, righteousness, and faith. And so the believer is saved from the penalty of sin. That's our past, that's the uh, point of salvation. He's saved from the power of sin. That's our present. That's our sanctification. And he's also saved from the presence of sin. That's our future glorification. Okay? Past, present, and future of the Christian life. Our past is that we at some point in time decided to put our trust in Christ. And that saves us from the uh, um, penalty of sin. And then we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling in Paul's words in Philippians. Um, We're being sanctified. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We're becoming more and more like Christ because we make decisions 
that honor him, okay? And as we uh, draw closer to the light, sometimes the more dirt we see. And so we've got uh, some work to do. You know, work has no part of our salvation. But our sanctification is all about us um, being led by the Spirit, being yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit, and doing the things that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2.10. He says that we're his masterpiece that, uh, uh, and that God has prepared works for us to do. Okay? So no works before uh, um, as a part of salvation. As a part of sanctification, we do have things to do, but we're led by the Spirit and the Spirit encourages us and leads us to do the things that God has prepared for us to do. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? That's important. So saved from the penalty of sin by our decision to trust in Christ. Saved from the power of sin as we uh, become sanctified. And ultimately, we'll be saved from the presence of sin in our lives when we're glorified. All right, um, here are seven terms. These are big words, uh, but don't let them scare you. They are words that you need to know as you read through the book of Romans. Justification, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, salvation, sanctification, and election. Okay, anybody feel like they could stand up and give us a definition of each one of these terms right now? Well, I don't think I could have either. Uh, until I started teaching this class, okay? But what I want to do is, like uh, uh, for each one of the books, I want to just give you a little handle so that when you hear the term justification, you won't go, okay, now what's justification? You'll go, declared righteous, okay? Propitiation, saved from the wrath of God. Okay, so let's look at these. So here's a definition of justification, a legal declaration in which God pardons and declares the sinner righteous. Think declared righteous. And you can read Romans uh, 5.1 and 5.9. Okay? We're, we don't have time to look at each one of these. Um, but if there's one that you just go, hey, I don't get that, we need to look at the Scripture, then just raise your hand. Okay? Um, here's the stone that uh, was uh, um, likely from the first century and used to cover um, um, tombs. It was rolled, you can see it's round, and it was rolled in a little channel to close tombs. So when you think justification, think declared righteous. We're declared righteous not on the basis of anything that we do, but on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. And we simply appropriate that into our lives by trusting in him. Okay? All right, propitiation. That's a big word. It's hard to say. Um, But it simply talks about satisfying and turning away God's righteous wrath uh, because of Christ's work on the cross. And so when you think propitiation, think satisfying God's wrath. That's what Christ did. He took that wrath so I wouldn't have to. Check out Romans 3.25 and 5.9. There you can see, let's see, um, you can see again uh, something that kind of looks like a skull and is one of the possible sites of uh, 
Golgotha, place of the skull. All right, um, next, redemption. Simply means that you're purchased out of the slave market of sin by the payment of a ransom. Okay? Christ paid that for me. You remember uh, Mark 10, 45, uh, that he uh, gave his life as a ransom for many? Okay? And so when you think redemption, think purchased out of the slave market of sin. We're no longer um, subject to the penalty of sin. And as we're sanctified, we're being released from the power of sin in our lives. Okay? See if I'm missing anything else as I'm just talking through these. Okay, um, here's a thought. Propitiation is really directed towards God. Redemption, is, on the other hand, is directed towards sin. And the next term, reconciliation, is directed towards man. And it's the uh, act of restoring relationship between two alienated parties. We never say that God is reconciled to man. We say that man is reconciled to God. And there's no longer any barrier, no longer any enmity between God and man. Okay? And so as you think reconciliation, think of the restoration of peace. That's what you uh, see in Romans 5.1. And again, that's directed towards man. Salvation's uh, uh, the next one, and that's a, a term you're... Um, certainly uh, um, familiar with, but it's also a term that we could spend the rest of the year studying and not exhaust. Okay? So it's the work of God in providing a way for man to have relationship with him through, uh, by faith through Jesus' uh, death uh, on the cross and his resurrection. Salvation. And you know, we talk about salvation as a point in time. And it is a point in time in which we put our trust in Christ, but it is also descriptive of the entire process or the entire rest of our lives. And so included within the banner of salvation, you would also include uh, um, sanctification and glorification. Sometimes uh, in the uh, uh, scriptures, um, salvation is used for the entire process. Okay, so think of it as a point in time, but also think of it as the entire process is known as salvation. And our salvation will be complete when we are with Christ forever. Something that uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17 promises. All right, sanctification. And so it means simply to be set apart. But I think there are two senses to the idea of sanctification. The first is a positional uh, sense, okay? And so um, it means that every believer is set apart by God for his unique possession. And so positionally, um, God views me through the lens of Christ's work on the cross. And so he sees me as blameless, even though in my um, fleshly body, I'm I'm certainly not blameless. If my wife was here, she'd give you a big amen, okay? Uh, But God sees us positionally in Christ as being blameless because we have been imputed with his righteousness, not our own, okay? But there's also a practical 
um, side of sanctification. Okay, And this is the process of growing and learning to walk in the Spirit uh, or the process of being conformed to the image of Christ is another way to say it, so that we are making decisions in our daily lives that honor Christ. And so you've got to think both positionally and practically. Okay, Sanctification has two different senses. Are you with me on that? All right. And the final term is the big one, the big E. Election. Um, means being chosen for salvation in Christ before the beginning of the world. You can read about it in uh, Romans 8. And so um, here are a couple of questions that uh, um, are also answered um, in the book of Romans um, when Paul raises this. Um, so does the fact that we're chosen for salvation in Christ... Um, does it make us robots? Well, that's answered by Romans 9. And so if, you know, we're elect and chosen by God, then why do we need to share the gospel with anybody? Well, that's answered by Romans 10. And then finally, okay, so is, can we trust that God is fair in his election? And that's answered by Romans uh, 11. Okay? And so, um, let me just encourage you with three principles about election. No one deserves to be saved. Romans 3, 9 through 12 make that crystal clear. And so, if no one deserves to be saved, then no one really has a beef about uh, the grace of God choosing that some would be saved. So that's principle number one. No one deserves it. Principle number two is that certainty is different from coercion. You still have to make the decision uh, to trust in Christ. Uh, if you're interested in this topic, there's a great little new book written by Randy Alcorn, who was here recently, um, called Hand in Hand. And it's a uh, great uh, discussion of the role of God's sovereignty and the role of man's responsibility and how those two truths um, coexist. Okay? I recommend that book highly. We're actually reading it uh, in our uh, equipping team right now. And then finally, and this one is uh, um, most comforting, Scripture does not teach what some call double predestination. And that is that God predestines some to be saved and he predestines some to eternal judgment. But rather, Scripture makes it clear that God loves the whole world and he sent his son to die for the sins of the whole world. And if you look at 2 Peter 3.9, it says that God is long-suffering and patient, willing that none should perish. He wants to bring salvation to everyone. And that's why he sent his son to die on the cross for me so that I might be able to accept the free gift of salvation simply by putting my trust in Christ. And he makes that same offer to you today, tonight. Okay, so no double predestination. Um, Wagner's talked about this from the, the uh, um, stage. Uh, it's just something that uh, um, um, some theological systems uh, 
include that sort of idea, but I don't think Scripture ever teaches that God created some people to send them to hell, and they have no chance to trust in Christ. Okay, and so as we think about uh, um, the uh, book of Romans, let me close with one last thing about it. The Romans Road. This is a great little tool for use in sharing your faith, for sharing the gospel with others. Romans 3.23 tells us man's position. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 6.23 says that the penalty of the wages of sin is death. Okay, but the free gift of God is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then Romans 5.8 talks about God's provision and how while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10, uh, 9 through 13 says that, hey, if we'll simply put our trust in Christ, we will be saved. And that is uh, in Romans uh, 1 and also 38 and 39, we have assurance that we are saved when we've put our trust in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so use that as you're sharing the gospel with folks. And so for the book of Romans, think salvation and think gospel. Let's move to uh, Hebrews now. For key key words, uh, I picked the superiority of Christ. I think it was likely written uh, right before uh, the Roman uh, conquest of Jerusalem. I picked verse... Verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter uh, for the key verse. Let's go look at those right quick in Hebrews. Talking about Christ, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this superiority of Christ runs throughout the book, and we'll talk about the things that Christ is superior to. Okay? And so for a purpose, I said, uh, to warn us against missing out on so great a salvation. Here we are at the uh, western or wailing wall, Uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, It's to encourage perseverance because Christ presents a better sacrifice, a better covenant, a better salvation, and a better hope, one that we can trust in. Because um, the recipients of this book were being tempted because of persecution to go back to Judaism. And uh, uh, the author of Hebrews is writing it to say, hey, don't do that because this is a superior salvation that has been offered to us because Christ is superior in all these ways. All right, so um, who wrote the book? Well, um, we've described uh, the author as unknown, um, but here are some of the possibilities. Um, Certainly first and foremost is Paul, uh, but it's really different from any of other uh, Paul's books. And Paul uh, typically um, identified himself. Um, <clears throat> whoever wrote the book obviously knew about Paul and knew Paul well. And so the second 
possible author was Barnabas, who traveled with Paul. And that would be my choice. Um, Some scholars think it might have been Luke. Uh, Clement of Rome is also identified. Apollos is mentioned as a possible one. Silas uh, is mentioned as a uh, possible author. Uh, Philip, or uh, for you ladies, Priscilla is also mentioned as a possible author of Scripture, okay, as an author of the book of uh, uh, Hebrews. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't know um, where it was written. We don't know the date when it was written or the place of writing. Uh, But the traditional view is that it was written to Jewish Christians. Its ancient title was simply to Hebrews. And we see in the book frequent use of the Old Testament as an unquestioned authority. Um, The author assumes that uh, his readers knew about the uh, sacrificial ritual and um, um, the many contrasts that the author highlights are simply designed to um, prevent the readers from forsaking their new faith and turning back to Judaism. And so I want to suggest to you a couple of different ways to organize the book. Okay? So first... Here's a little outline using superiority. In, in chapters 1 through 4, we uh, have a discussion of the superiority of Christ's person. And then 5 through 10, the superiority of his work. And then finally, the closing three chapters, 11 through 13, the superiority of the Christian's walk. Anybody know what uh, this photograph is of? Hmm? Tomb, Exactly. That is a possible burial site of Christ, okay? Um, Nobody knows if that's uh, the real site. Uh, Likely it's not. But it is certainly a great representation of what a first century burial site would have looked like, okay? So you're actually inside a little cave, okay? And uh, um, there's cut out in this cave just a, uh, a small enclosure. You can't tell how small that is, but... It's probably uh, four feet long by a couple of feet wide. Okay? And so um, a different way of organizing the book is around five warning passages in the book. Okay? And again, remember one of the purposes was that we not neglect so great a salvation and miss out on uh, um, salvation through Christ. And so in... uh, um, There's a warning against drifting away in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 4. And then there's a warning uh, against failing to enter into God's rest in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In 5.11 through 6.12, and that's actually one of the most problematic passages, not just in this book, but in all of Scripture, uh, in uh, around 6.6. Uh, there's a warning against failing to move on to maturity, okay? And I think that helps us understand what Paul is, I'm sorry, Paul, what Mr. Unknown or Ms. Unknown is saying uh, about um, um, maturity in uh, chapter 6. I think it's clear from the context of the book that they are writing to people who have put their trust in Christ, So they're not writing to unbelievers. They're writing to uh, folks who are indeed saved, and they are exhorting them not to be saved, but to move on to maturity in Christ, okay? 
And then uh, in chapter 10, there's a warning against willful sin and allowing that to torpedo our walk with Christ. And then finally, uh, in a great chapter, chapter 12, there's a warning against um, giving up the race. There's a, uh, an exhortation to endure, to persevere, to continue on uh, to maturity and to uh, a walk with Christ that brings him honor and glory. Um, when we talk about uh, the superiority of Christ, well, let's go back. Um, let me give you uh, some ways in which um, the Son is described as being superior. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he is described as being superior to the Old Testament prophets. In 1 4 that we read, he's superior to angels. If you go read uh, chapter 3, verse 3, he's superior to Moses. And, you know, um, gang, we probably don't have the proper reverence for Moses. Moses was a key figure for the, the Jews in general and certainly for the Jewish believers as well. He's a superior high priest in uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 510, and he offers a superior priesthood in chapter 7. He has a superior ministry in 8.6, and uh, he um, is the mediator of a superior covenant in 8.6 through 13. And he um, has a superior sanctuary in 9.24, and he offers a superior sacrifice of himself that had to only be offered once and achieve forgiveness uh, for our sins. That's in 9. Uh, 11 through 28. And so when you think about it, when you put together the superiority of Christ on the one hand and the warnings against uh, uh, missing so great a salvation, uh, the warnings against drifting away what, or whatnot, you really have the perfect combination of exposition and exhortation. So you have, you know, that Christ is superior and then you're exhorted don't miss this. And together they form the perfect combination of exposition and exhortation. Uh, key words in the book, uh, the word better, the word heavenly, and the word perfect. And so finally, for the book itself, think about the superiority of the Son in the five warning passages. Okay? Um, next week, we will uh, uh, be focused on the book of Revelation. Um, we'll run through basically all the chapters of the book of Revelation from start to finish. I'll give you a little way of outlining it, and you'll see it's the same sort of uh, outline idea as uh, Luke used in Acts 1.8. Okay? Um, all right, so I've thrown a ton of stuff at you. And uh, I'm actually done six minutes early, which that's amazing in and of itself. Um, so any questions you have? And I've also, uh, if the uh, fellows here who asked the question about the longer ending of Mark, um, I've got an answer for that as well.
So, um, any questions you have on what we covered tonight? Um, perfect. Better, heavenly, and perfect. Okay, um, the answer is that, um, basically the answer is nobody knows where it came from, um, but um, there are three possible explanations. Okay, so um, scholars are pretty much in agreement that the original gospel likely ended at uh, verse 8. This is Mark 16, 8. Okay, and what that does is that it draws you into the story and it basically leaves you with a cliffhanger, just like we do today, and it causes you to go, okay, so based on this story that I've just heard, what am I, how am I going to respond to this story. It's kind of like uh, um, Luke ending Acts on a comma, okay, because it forces us to be drawn into the story. Okay, so here are three possible explanations uh, for um, what happened here. Uh, so the first one is that the author intentionally ended it at 16.8. The second one is that uh, the author never finished the gospel, and then finally, the, the last possible explanation that scholars offer is that the last leaf of the manuscript was lost, okay? Um, and scholars go, hey, forget two and three. The reason uh, they think that it uh, ended there is that it is in keeping with other parts of his gospel that Mark should not give an explicit account of a an explicit account of a conclusion where this is already well known to his readers. Okay? And so the readers must now ask themselves, what will I do with Jesus? If I do not accept him in his suffering, I will not see him in his glory. Okay? And so scholars today believe that the gospel likely ended at chapter 8. I'm sorry, at verse 8. Uh, but they go on to say that even though the uh, ending, uh, verses nine, 9 through 20, is likely not in the original, it doesn't mean that it's not historically accurate. Okay? And so that's the reason why uh, most Bibles today included in brackets to say, hey, it wasn't in the original, but there is uh, truth in it because for the most part, just about everything in there, with the possible exception of the snakes, uh, maybe, or the drinking of the poison, I guess it is. Um, those things may uh, have some historical credence and were accepted by the early church. Okay, so that's not a uh, definitive answer, but I think it's the best that scholars can do today to say eight was likely the ending point, but nine through 20 has historical accuracy, and therefore we're going to at least include it, but indicate that it's um, likely not a part of the original by putting it in brackets. And so most of our Bibles either have it in, you know, uh, single or double brackets. Okay? Any questions on that or anything else? I'll be sticking around. If you have questions, come on up. And uh, uh, next week we'll be rolling with the book of Revelation.
Hey, gang, one more thing. I've had these sitting here all night. Um, if you're looking for a great little uh, tool to give you an insight and overview of each one of the books of the Bible, this talk through the Bible is something that both Blake and I use. Uh, it is an excellent overview of each one of the books of the Bible, and it lists the you know who wrote it, the date, the setting, uh, um, what is the role of Christ in the particular book, and it's a great overview. And then uh, something else called Nelson's New Testament Survey uh, has a little different approach but it does essentially the same thing in offering a, a, an overview for each one of the books. So these are handy tools as you start to study a book um, for the first time or if you're coming back to it and you've not read it, read it in a while, these are a handy um, guide for helping you get back in to the flow of the book. Okay, Talk through the Bible and Nelson's New Testament survey.